zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're re-watching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing The Nesting, released May 1st, 1981. It was written by Daria Price and Armand Weston, directed by Armand Weston, and released by Warner Brothers. The nesting landed in section three of the video nasties. Why? Why? They barely I don't know. show anything. I mean, I guess there's one kill that they show yeah. that's graphic. Yeah. And I guess the nudity, but I don't feel like the nudity is too much of a factor. Yeah, that's weird. The house that serves as the central location of the film is the Armor Steiner House in Irvington, New York. As of 2017, it has been made available to rent for $40,000 a month. Though the price may have changed a bit in the oh last gosh. four years. What? It's been restored, I presume? No, it looks exactly it like looks, it does. It looks yeah. as run down. It's got broken windows. The stairs are demolished. <laughs> got that one really soft wood floor, floor area. Floor, you just fall right through. Truck full of dead hookers in the yard. <laughs> <laughs> it also shows up in the film Across the Universe, wherein Bono refers to the building as the headquarters of the League of Spiritual Deliverance. It's a beautiful house. Yeah, it's really I nice. Mean, I think if you did fix it up, it's it's gorgeous. It's I, I would live there, spirits and all. Yeah, but not for forty thousand a month. No. No, I'd pay way more than that. We start outside a gorgeous whorehouse in the fifties or sixties. We're not really given a year for this backstory. Yeah, I think it's the fifties. Fifties, okay. Yeah, look, looking at the cars. I, I described it as an old-timey murder. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. the cars made me think it was like 30s or 40s. Well, but they do... So they reference the war. Yeah, so it's after World War II? Well, it's after a war. It's after World War II. When was the Korean War? Was 50s. 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 I think that that might be what the war is. I mean, because it seems too... The Vietnam War seems too late. Yeah. I mean, it could be the 40s, and it's after World War II. Hmm. We flash forward some years, some decades, to the home of Lauren Cochran under Johann Sebastian Bach's Air on the G-String. <laughs> the camera pans across the desk of a darkened The camera pans across the desk of a darkened office with hardback copies of a novel called The Nesting, a typewriter, print advertisements for the book. In the corner, Lauren is reading the paper and finishing breakfast. She checks her watch and leaves the house, but seems to have some trouble locking the door behind her. Her hands tremble and she drops the keys to the floor. She has to lean on the railing to make her way out of the building, and her breathing is labored. As she leaves the building, we get a tight handheld shot of her face to convey her discomfort moving down the sidewalk. Everyone turns to look at her as she moves along, and repeatedly she wipes sweat from her brow. Yeah. I, I f either didn't remember... Or didn't know that this was about an agoraphobic. Yeah, and I was like, I was like, is she sick? What's wrong? With <laughs> what her? happened? I forgot too, and I just assumed that there were prostitute ghosts right outside her door. Oh yeah, that <laughs> she could the see them, but I we couldn't. <laughs> she hails a cab and can't even bring herself to get in when one stops. Hey lady, why don't you make up your mind? She runs all the way back home and slams the door behind her. 
We cut to her in an office with a therapist who tells her that what she just described is an anxiety attack. How did she get here? <laughs> to his office? <laughs> yeah. Great question. <laughs> is is it not her house? Did he come and meet her at her house? No, I guess it is his office. I think it's yeah. his office. Yeah. That's a good question. I don't know. Th- this movie uh, became very problematic with me about the agoraphobia. Yeah. Because it didn't play as much of a factor as I was hoping. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Because how great would it be if you're in a haunted house and you can't go outside because you're too scared to go outside? Yeah. I mean, at a certain point, aren't you going to decide what's scarier, the thing on this side of the door right. or the thing on the other side of the door? But that's the tension of the film. That's true. And it's not this film. He tells her that she's likely suffering from agoraphobia. <laughs> of all the lousy phobias, trust me to come up with one I've never even heard of. Maybe things were different in 81, but agoraphobia is probably one of the first five I would mention if you <laughs> yeah. told me to name phobias. Yeah. We cut to Lauren back at home, laid across the couch, listening to a hypnotist on a cassette tape. As the hypnotist describes her collecting her keys and heading for the door, we see a translucent Lauren lean forward out of her and collect the keys from her purse. Ghost Lauren opens the front door and locks it behind her. Just as she opens the lobby door downstairs, a blonde woman steps through the door, blocking her path, and the camera pushes into her face. Her hairstyle seems dated, maybe from the year our cold open took place. Suddenly, we hear someone mashing her buzzer, and she wakes up on the couch and asks who it is. I really like the effect that they did here. I thought it looked pretty good for yeah. for the for a visual effect. And Where you lock down the camera and just play the two videos yeah. over each other? Yeah. yeah, it looked real nice. When she asks who it is at the door, her visitor answers in a fake accent. I got your delivery, man. If you want it, you better open the door. Hi. <laughs> it's Lauren's boyfriend, question mark? Yeah. Mark. <laughs> and uh, he's here with groceries for her. He sees the visualization tapes that she's trying out, and he asks how her phobia is progressing. We cut back to her therapist. She thinks a trip out of the city might help. Do you guys recall the last time that somebody told their therapist they were going to leave town to escape anxiety and accidentally moved into an abandoned haunted house? <laughs> I do remember that. Yeah. What was that? What was it called? It was... The hearse. The hearse. The hearse. That's right. I was going to say The Changeling also, but... The two Trish Vandeveer movies that came yeah. out last year that are basically combined to make this movie. Yes. Mark has offered to drive Lauren out of town. As they drive, she tells him that she loves him, and he says, I know, like a brother, right? Right, which made it even more confusing, because if, if they'd skipped that line, I would have just been like, yeah, it's her boyfriend, and I would have thought that the entire movie. But then they add this line, and I'm like, who are you? There's a couple more lines in here that I think indicate that she knows he likes her, and she doesn't like him. But they kiss they, at various points. They do? They do. There's there's multiple kisses from them. Okay. But we find out later that she hates men. Yes. Or, or that she's terrified she's, of them. Sorry, not hates men, but she's terrified of men. So yes. I think that they, this, she, she is in a relationship with him as much as she can be in a relationship yeah. with anyone. As much as I can be in a relationship with a bear. <laughs> and by bear, I don't mean, well, whatever. <laughs> Too late. It's on the <laughs> podcast. <laughs> out in the middle of nowhere, they take a dirt road past a lake and come to a sinkhole. Instead of turning the car around, Lauren tells Mark to hike through the wilderness with her. Apparently, they will be meeting a realtor at two, so they're just burning time. So lovely here. Yeah, the Loch Ness Monster thinks so too. The lake is suddenly bubbling wildly, and then a strong breeze blasts past them, leading Lauren to a clearing 
and an old house. Right away, her boyfriend, husband, guy friend, Mark, brother, uh, thinks that he's being pranked Mm -hmm. because it's an exact replica of the house that we've seen illustrated on the cover of her novel, The Nesting. She swears up and down that she's never seen this house and that the illustration was done from descriptions that she fed an illustrator. So either she imagined this exact house or the illustrator had been here and was like, I'm just going to draw this house I saw once. It sounds like what you're talking but she, about. But it's it's a uniquely shaped house. It, it's it's an octagon yes. shape and, and it's got domes. And so it's you'd have to really be describing something pretty unique for the illustrator to, to pull this out of his butt, you know? Yeah. As a result, Lauren concludes that she must have seen this house somewhere because it's exactly what she had in mind while she was working on the book. But he's also like throwing everything she says to him back in his, in her face. Yeah. Like, was like I must have seen it. Ah, so you admit it. Like, like it, yeah. it, it's, it's like, like everything's a gotcha. Yeah, everything's a gotcha. And and I, I made a note. It's like, does she just lie to him constantly and that's why he doesn't believe anything she says? <laughs> or is this just what he's like to everybody and that's why she only loves him as a brother? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe he's just really uncomfortable with this situation and he's making jokes about it. While they chat in the yard, Lauren notices a hand pulling aside the curtains of an upstairs window. So far, that's not creepy at all because we've been given no conclusive evidence that this place is abandoned and they might just not be keeping up with their landscaping. As they explore around the porch, a flock of birds screech past them, terrifying them both. It's a pretty good jump scare. Yeah, it freaks me out too on the first pass. Yeah. It was like that parrot in uh, high risk. <laughs> oh, they yeah. come around the corner. Just, <laughs> when nobody answers the door, Lauren just pushes right in and Mark reminds her that this is now officially trespassing. He worries that whoever lives here may be armed. I smell perfume. Yeah, well, I smell trouble. Hello? Anyone home? In the kitchen, Lauren finds a pack of cigarettes on the table and a still-smoking cigarette in an ashtray beside them. She turns to her right and sees the shadow of a woman crossing the porch outside. She collects Mark from the other room and leads him to the table where the cigarettes have now disappeared. He reminds her that they have somewhere to be, but she drags him upstairs. They don't see anything upstairs, but Lauren tells Mark that she intends to rent this place to write in, and he thinks that's a ridiculous idea. Yeah, because this house looks like it should be condemned. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean... Does it, this poll still work? I was just going to say, <laughs> this neighborhood is like a demilitarized zone. <laughs> I mean, I feel like it's presumptuous to assume anybody would rent this to you, because if I owned a house that was falling apart, I think it would be a liability to rent it For out sure, yeah. without yeah. fixing it up. We cut right to Lauren and Mark meeting with Daniel Griffith at another location. I thought at first that this was the realtor since they kept saying they had to go see a realtor. But this is the person they saw after the realtor because he just said that he's a quantum physicist. (laughs) (laughs) I guess they skipped ahead. The realtor's like, no, no, go talk to this guy. There's no way they didn't shoot the scene, though, with the realtor because Mm -hmm. it's clear the script was leading us to a realtor scene. Well, she comes into the script later. Right, right. You're probably right. It sounds like they've already brought him up to speed, and by sheer coincidence, his grandfather owns the property. Daniel assures her that it is available for rent. Apparently, Daniel is only home with his grandfather for a year in exchange for funding a project that he intends to complete. Is it bringing ghosts back to life? No. Daniel leads them to his grandfather's office, where Grandfather Colonel LeBrun, as played by John Carradine, is fiddling with an old cavalry pistol. He agrees to renting the house without any real details. I have some guests with me. Miss Cochran is going to rent the house. Fine, fine. Go ahead and make the arrangements. 
There's a weird line in the office here where Colonel LeBrun notices that Mark and Lauren have different last names, and she says something along the lines of, oh, we're just good friends, and LeBrun thinks that he needs to be trying harder to win her heart. Why hasn't the girl managed you? You've got character. Grandfather. That's quite all right, Colonel. He does have character, and so do you. You're everything your grandson said you were. Is that so? But when he finally looks up at Lauren, his face contorts drastically as though he were suffering a heart attack, he collapses out of his chair, and we cut away to Mark helping Lauren move into the old house. Mark finds a beaded crystal curtain in the closet and hangs it up when suddenly a gunshot cuts through the home. Somehow they blame this on the handyman flushing an old pipe in the house, <laughs> yeah. even though they noticed a bullet hole in the window. Well, and, like, yeah, there's there's a distinct difference between a cracked pane of glass and a bullet hole going through the window. Yeah. And then you actually have to look at it and be like, which way is it curved? Is it coming in through the window or out through the window? Right, yeah. Like, which direction did this bullet come from or, or did it shatter from? Because you could tell the yeah. trajectory Where of Where are the shards? Object. Yeah. <laughs> the handyman is very gruff with them and also serves as the closest thing we get to a harbinger in the film. Don't know why you'd want to go and stay in a place like this. Seems downright unsmart to me. It's a beautiful old house. Well, like they say, beauty's in the eye of the whoever. Yeah, that's what they say. When he tries to leave, they ask if he might take a look at the window in the sitting room where the glass cracked. He doesn't think he can fix it anytime soon because the nearest glazer is 30 miles away. We don't need a donut. We need you to fix our window. No, a glazer is a glass worker. Glazier. Glazer. Wasn't that one of the... Uh... Are you American a Gladiator? god? <laughs> I was going to say American Gladiators. Oh, maybe. Glazer. <laughs> that sounds vaguely pornographic. <laughs> <laughs> he brings the pain. No, oh, come on. Come on. That's funny because of pain. Oh, Glazer. yeah. Okay. <laughs> that makes more sense. I was still in sexual references, so I was trying to figure out. Like, I, like, I hope not. <laughs> Daniel shows up to see how they're doing moving in. They ask about his grandfather, and apparently he's unable to speak, but recovering. Yeah, he says I, he says specifically that it was a stroke that he had. I thought for sure he was dead. Yeah, I, I thought so I was too. Like, yeah, this, this is done. John Carradine's wrapped for the day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, that actually happened on set. They were like, all right, all right we'll go you're good it. then. <laughs> Dan tells them the phone lines will be up and running within a week. They mention that Mark needs to be at the train station soon, and Dan offers to drive him to save Lauren the trip. Uh, there is a weird line read. There's a bunch of weird line reads that I made <laughs> notes of. This one was, she says, you're going to miss your train. And he goes, yeah, okay, Doki. Okay, Doki. <laughs> okay, Doki? Yeah, but he says it like like, like her name is Doki. He's like, yeah, okay, Doki. Okay, Doki. That's really weird. <laughs> and I was like, does he not know the ter- phrase "okie dokie"? Well, her her last name is her name is Lauren Doki. No, it's Cochrane. That- oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> Which way? <laughs> oh, we'll get there. As Mark hops into Daniel's car, Lauren reminds him that he is free to be with whoever he wants back in the city, and he tells her that he understands. So it's like, oh, we have an open relationship where each of us can see whoever we want, and neither one of us will see each other. Go away, guy. <laughs> Yeah, so my note here is now, Lauren is now living alone in the middle of nowhere in an unlivable house. Right. With no phone. Right. Dan and Mark leave together. 
That night we see Lauren brushing her hair in front of a mirror for a while, and then suddenly undoing her robe to caress her breasts for a while. Both regular nighttime occurrences, I'm sure. <laughs> An extra pair of hands reach around her into the shot, and when she notices them, she spins around to find Mark standing there. Ugh, it's she still re- terrifying. Like even like <laughs> even with it revealing Mark, like those hands coming around like out of the darkness onto her body is terrifying. She runs to her quilted couch from her apartment in the city to hide from him, and suddenly we see her therapist approaching the couch and undoing his tie. Pretty clear we're in a nightmare because we're jumping from location to location. We see her laying across what looks like a therapist couch. It's like a red couch that's flat mostly. What is that called? Like A lounge? A lounge. There you go. And uh, But she's laying across it in a room that's crowded with prostitutes who are all chatting with uniformed men. Uh, specifically servicemen we get another glimpse of mark and her therapist before daniel shows up staring into her eyes and when she turns around she finds a woman with a reflection where her face should be but then the mirrored part fades to a face and it looks a lot like her face she screams and tears the beaded strings off of herself before waking up in bed just as she sits up the beaded curtain in the closet collapses to the ground the next day, she calls her therapist, Dr. Webb, from the grocery store for some reason. Well, she doesn't have a phone. Yeah, I guess. Th- and that's what, when she was moving in, they're like, if you need something, just go down to the general store. They have a phone down there. Oh, and they have there. a phone. Okay, I yeah. missed that line. Uh, but she's talking to him, and she's excited because she remembers details from her dream, which doesn't usually happen. Uh, and she's most excited to report that the crystal beads that she destroyed in her dream were coincidentally destroyed as soon as she woke up through no fault of her own like just by coincidence they broke so she predicted that magically so this is the second time now in this movie that they've they've said that no one remembers their dreams and is that a thing i always remember my dreams i don't think they say no one specifically she doesn't remember her dreams well well, uh or okay then maybe that's the way he phrased it because uh because mark was like he said like you don't remember your dreams and I, and I thought it oh, was like... Not, not like the royal you, like yeah, everyone. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. he specifically means you have a problem remembering dreams. Okay, okay Doki. <laughs> she shares with Dr. Webb her suspicion that the house is haunted, and he asks her to come in for an appointment. <laughs> <laughs> why don't you come check in real quick? Uh, that'd be probably good. And she says, why don't you come out here? You should come out to this house. He seems hesitant, but she reminds him that she's a good customer. Seventy-five bucks a week for seven years? That's twenty-seven grand I've dropped on you. Either she's very quick with math, or she keeps a very exact tally in her head of what she spent on therapy. Because seventy-five bucks a week times fifty-two weeks a year times seven years comes to twenty-seven thousand three hundred dollars. Eventually, he promises to try and visit this weekend. She turns around and sees her handyman chugging liquor in the grocery store. She asks if he already got the glass to replace the broken window, even though he specifically told her it would take a while. The handyman says that he's paid by the colonel, but not enough to do his job quickly, and Lauren accuses him of trying to rip her off, even though she's not paying him. Yeah. That night, we see Lauren digging through a chest in the closet where she finds an old photo book and a candlestick with a big letter C on it. She sits down to her typewriter for a while smoking and looks up to the spiderwebbed bullet hole in the window of her sitting room. The next day, we see Lauren hiding behind a tree in the yard as the handyman comes out of the house and leaves in his truck, even though she's clearly hiding from him. They both look at each other for a while, so it's not like she's literally hiding from him, but she just doesn't want to be around him. Yeah. 
So she just went out in the yard and hid behind a tree instead of just closing herself in a room. It just seems like a weird choice. In the room upstairs, the window has been replaced, but she finds the man's cigar has been left on her manuscript and has burned a hole in the pages. I will read for you now an excerpt of the story she has Ooh. been typing. Keep in mind this is a first draft. If we turn around now, we can get back to the village by 1130, Robert declared to no one. Robert gave Sarah's hand a comforting squeeze, then looked away from her. Once again, she felt affronted. She cried out angrily, You never wanted to come in the first place. You always hated the Sheks. Don't be ridiculous, he snapped, a bit too harshly. It's just that I would much rather have stayed in the city for Sam's party. You know how important it could be for me if I got to meet Gary Hill. He was right, of course, and Sarah knew it, but she could not seem to shake the anger she felt for him. And scene. What are the Sheks? I think it's a f- people. A people. <laughs> a couple, probably. Lauren finds another candlestick with the letter F on it this time. Later in the day, we see Lauren find a much older typewriter in a closet. She gets it up and running and continues her work using it. We see some of her pages and notice that the D, B, and W don't seem to be working properly. But this ribbon of like a 30-year-old typewriter is perfectly yeah, fine. Yeah, everything's fine. It's yeah. just the three letters don't work Okay. Right. <laughs> And the significance of those letters? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> well, it comes back a little later. Does it? It does. Oh, you didn't, I didn't notice. catch this. Okay. All right. I'll let you know when we get there. Suddenly, Lauren can hear faint music in the house and stands to follow it. She calls out for whoever might have turned on the music, but nobody answers. She seems to trace the music to the attic and climbs up into it. She finds a record player still spinning. She also finds more strands of beads and shoes and dresses. She has a flashback to the mirrored face of the woman from her dream, and we realize that the woman is wearing the dress that she just found. We see a pair of high heels march through the attic behind a row of hanging clothes, and Lauren follows the stranger out of the room. Lauren continues her search up a spiral staircase to the highest point of the house, a lookout above the rooftop. She tries to open one of the windows, but the rotted floorboards crumble beneath her, and she has no choice (laughs) but to climb out the window and walk around on the ledge outside 40 to 50 feet off the ground. I feel like I would try. No, no. Try to this was the only option. One way or the other, no, forward no, or backwards, no, no. to try to get around the broken boards. You're crazy. Okay. Her only choice was to climb out the window, the top of the building. Right at this moment, her therapist arrives in his car, and he asks what she's doing up there. He offers to help and races upstairs to find her. On the top floor, he sees where her foot fell through the floorboards. To give you a mental image, the building is octagonal in shape, and this top room has eight windows around the perimeter. There's a hole in the floorboards in front of one window, and we're meant to understand that she cannot climb back in that window. Right. So she climbed out the window, and she followed the ledge around to the right side and is pressed against the next window to the right. Instead of breaking that window, Dr. Webb elbows out the window pane on the opposite side, (laughs) meaning that instead of just pulling her in like he could have done, he now has to climb out of the building himself and then move around it to get to her. He also could have just climbed out the window that she climbed out of. He didn't have to climb out a window at all. (laughs) He could have broken the window she was leaning against and pulled her in. Yeah. I mean, I think that they needed to do a better job of selling that a large chunk of floor dropped out. Yeah, that that's true. It was obvious that nobody could walk on that area. Or or have something 
like one of these presents like trying to grab her and so she she feels like she has to get out yeah that would make like, sense like some, something chased her out the window yeah well because i thought that that was almost happening when she was like sinking into the floor yeah i thought oh something's pulling her into the floor and that's why she's trying to escape but there there is nothing nope just gravity lauren is obviously terrified and grips the building tightly with her eyes closed Inside the top room of the house, we see a red-headed woman leaning out the window and laughing hysterically, terrifying Lauren. Dr. Webb is unable to reach her and loses his balance before falling and impaling himself on a rooftop statue. A piece of this metal statue has gone through the back of his head and sticks out one eye socket, and the rest of his body shakes uncontrollably while Lauren screams bloody murder. Oh yeah, I guess there's two scenes that are kind of graphic that might make yeah, the video nasty. that's possible. Uh, so here's a question. Mm-hmm. Do you two think that there's anything supernatural about his death? Was it purely no. the, the house giving way and him losing his balance? Or w- was anything like, were any ghosts involved in his death? No. In my opinion, no. She, okay. He just fell. Okay. He was very dumb, like she was very dumb, and he climbed out the window for no reason, and then he fell off the building. Which is, happens to people when they climb out of windows. Because I have one big question about this movie that I'll bring back up at the end. But I just... I, I know what your question okay. is. I have the yeah. same problem. Yeah, I think I know where you're going with this too. <laughs> we cut to Lauren enjoying a coffee with Daniel. <laughs> He's trying to comfort her and remind her that she's not responsible for her therapist's death. I think she kind of is. A little bit. <laughs> a tiny, tiny bit. She yeah. brought him all the way out to the middle of nowhere and, and tricked him into climbing the out the window of the roof. <laughs> And then he fell to his death. Yeah, it's a little bit her fault. Daniel blames the woman that was leaning out the window laughing at them. But then Lauren reminds him that that woman vanished into thin air and probably doesn't exist. (laughs) Also, she yells out, it wasn't an accident. Right. And my note is, as your attorney, I must advise you not to say that it wasn't an accident how this guy died. (laughs) Don't go around telling people that he died and it wasn't an accident. This was on purpose. I admit the possibility of the unknown. I admit that science is only beginning to understand its own discoveries. But I do not believe in evil spirits or painted phantoms in windows. If you are really a scientist, you will help me find out. The next morning, Lauren wakes up to pounding sounds. Do you guys remember the last time a central character woke up to pounding noises alone in a haunted house? and eventually blamed the noise on a handyman charged with fixing the place. Was that the changeling? Yeah. Okay. Lauren finds Frank, the handyman, hammering on her roof. He's here to fix the holes in the floorboard just inside the window that she climbed out of. How did she ever get back inside? Yeah. We don't have to cover that. That doesn't matter. (laughs) Lauren goes to get dressed for the day in her room and notices some extra words have been typed out on her typewriter. Back and forth. Oh. (laughs) You see it now. Back and forth it reads, web dead, web dead, web dead. But these words would be impossible to write on the typewriter if the W, B, and D are all broken. Yep. Interesting. What does it mean? Obviously, this message is in reference to Dr. Webb's recent death by rooftop impaling. (laughs) Oh. Webb is dead. She confronts Frank about the mysterious words, believing that he intentionally burned her manuscript with a cigar and then typed these words to freak her out he denies having entered her room now what would i want to come into your bedroom for to type on my typewriter that's what for hold on is this a euphemism are you inviting me in what's happening here 
He tells her she's crazy, and she walks away. She comes back a few minutes later to apologize, as Frank is demolishing the stairs up to her house. I'm assuming it's just replacing them all, because they're all the same rotted wood as the top Mm -hmm. floor. She invites him in for coffee as an apology, and while they sit together, she asks what he knows about the house, and if he's seen a girl with red hair hanging around. Frank accuses her of imagining a lot of stuff. Then, he turns on a dime, accusing her of bringing him inside specifically for sex, and then roughing her up as she struggles against him. While they fight, Frank suddenly sees the same blonde woman blocking the front door that Lauren saw when she was hypnotized earlier. I think she actually bites his hand here. Like, there's a moment where he retracts from her really fast. Frank is now being tossed physically all over the house, crashing through cabinets, shelving, and tables. Eventually, he gets yanked into the air, as if by fizzy lifting drink, and then dropped hard on the floor. Yeah, all as he's being bashed around, all of these are by an invisible force. Right, yeah. That she's not doing this. Yeah, it looks like the end of uh, Beetlejuice, where he's just floating up into the sky in the, in the living room. He makes a run for it, diving down the front steps of the house, but when he gets to his truck, it's loaded with dead and bloodied prostitutes. Oh my goodness! What are you doing? I've never seen so many dead hookers in all my life! Lord knows I have. (laughs) (laughs) Terrified, Frank dashes off into the woods, claiming it wasn't his fault. I didn't do it! I didn't do it! It wasn't me that did it! I was Abby! Abby done it! I didn't do it! We see him running full speed through the woods until he starts trudging out into the lake. When he comes to a stop to catch his breath, a bunch of rotting corpse arms reach up out of the water and drag him screaming under the surface. Uh, I I described him as helping hands. Oh, okay. (laughs) I thought you were going to say, do you remember the last time a corpse hand dragged somebody into a lake? (laughs) uh, Friday the 13th, part two, in the flashback of the first movie. Yeah, there you go. Sure, that's the most recent. Um, I really liked this effect, though, of the hands coming up. I mean, it... It would be a pain to do that because you'd have to have all these actors in the middle of the lake yeah. and get them to go underwater and hold their breath until... Yeah, I the, mean, I imagine that they're... Like, all you see is the arms, so I imagine that they probably have respirators under there. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. What, you know, and maybe they gave one to him as soon as he got underneath, but what's amazing about this shot to me was they pull back on the lake as wide. he goes down and they go really wide and they, they, they dolly back very slowly and I'm just like, how long is he under there? Because there's no bubbles coming up. So right. even if they were doing respirators underneath, they've stopped exhaling because there's no bubbles at this yeah. point. So and you just see ripples spreading out across the yeah, lake. It's, yeah, the, the water's going dead calm, you know, for, for quite a while. And I'm like, that's that's pretty impressive. It's very cool. Back at the house, Lauren trembles as she tries to enter one of the cars outside of her home and eventually gives up running back into the house. There's a thunderstorm that night and she doesn't even bother to close the door to Frank's truck to keep the rain out. She moves to her little sitting room to get more writing done, but she's so terrified of the outdoors that she barricades every entrance to the house with furniture. We see her later reading a book in bed as thunder and lightning clash outside. She seems drawn out of the room by a sound that I'm not hearing. She takes a flashlight with her as she moves upstairs. It has a weirdly narrow beam of light, and she's literally only seeing like a pinprick of illumination on the wall where she points the flashlight. She hears what sounds like sex in an upstairs room, and when she pushes inside, she finds a naked couple in bed, and suddenly the woman with red hair rolls over and starts laughing in her face. Lauren screams full volume as the couple from the bed, now fully clothed, reach for her out of the doorway, and as she runs down the hall, she collides with other gropey prostitutes and johns. 
The scream here is completely blood curdling, and I definitely got goosebumps on my first watch because she hits this like yeah. terrifying pitch. Lauren locks herself back in her own room and dives under the sheets. As she silently sobs, we see a man's arm rise up over her from beside her on the bed. She freaks out and grabs a knife off of her nightstand to stab the man through the shoulder, pinning him to the bed. She's distracted momentarily by a laugh outside, and when she looks back at the bed, there is no man, and the knife is stabbed into the pillow where he was. And it's not Mark this time, or it is Mark? I couldn't tell. I couldn't tell who this guy was. Yeah, but it's just as terrifying as the first time that right. the hands reached around. It was, yeah. It's just really creepy. We cut to town where Daniel is checking in with Mrs. Beasley for Frank's whereabouts. I think Mrs. Beasley is the realtor because she asks Daniel if the man who died on the property was the nice young man she met with Lauren earlier. Daniel confirms that it was not Mark who died, but Lauren's therapist, Dr. Webb. Mrs. Beasley reminds Daniel that Lauren should never have been allowed to rent that house. So we have another nosy lady at the real estate office to make this movie more like the changeling than it already was. Yeah. Daniel asks the last time the property was rented, and she says not since the 50s. Before that, it was a whorehouse run by a woman named Florinda Costello, which correlates with the F and C candlesticks that Lauren has found on the property. I find it hard to believe that in 30 years of being abandoned that this house wouldn't be picked clean, let alone burnt to the ground by teenagers or some shit. It's haunted. Nobody wants to go in there. Kids love going into haunted places. The locals know there's dead prostitute ghosts in there. Yeah, that's why you go there. Ghost jobs. (laughs) (laughs) What? Mrs. Beasley said the clientele were mostly servicemen from a nearby army base and then a mix of locals. Everyone assumed that the business shut down after the war ended because they didn't have any customers. Mrs. Beasley also happens to recall that Frank was drunk for a week after the house closed down. And then for the next few decades, probably. (laughs) Frank was best friends with Abner at the time. Back at the house, Lauren works up the courage to unblock the front door and walk to her car again. This time she makes it to the driver's seat. Daniel goes to see Abner at his farmhouse looking for Frank. Abner says Frank owes him money so they haven't seen each other in a while. And Daniel says, if you bump into him, tell him I'm at the Octagon house because I'm checking on the renter there. Abner seems terrified to learn that someone's renting the Octagon house and can't believe that the colonel would approve that. Out of nowhere, Abner brings up that Daniel's father, Leland the son of the colonel, was not killed in a war like Daniel was told, but rather just wounded. Abner also makes the claim that Leland was not Daniel's biological father, suggesting that Leland was still at war when Daniel was conceived. Abner won't say who the true father is, or he doesn't know, but Daniel doesn't even care to ask. He just says, guess what, that guy's not your dad, and he doesn't say who is. It's weird. Yeah, but he's also arguing with a total drunk jerk who yeah. yeah. like, could be making all this stuff up just to piss him off. We cut to Lauren ringing the doorbell at the colonel's estate. The butler, Joseph, answers the door and informs her that Daniel is out running errands. She asks to use the phone. She calls Mark Felton and tells him how awful things have been. Oh, they killed my therapist and all these terrible murders are happening. Come and get me, please. She tells Mark that she's convinced the house is haunted, officially. Well, she was attacked. She was attacked by the handyman. Like, that—that that is a very traumatizing thing. Does she bring that up in this call? No. She doesn't. <sighs> she says, You're I right. think the house is haunted and Dr. Webb died. That's all she says. She, I thought she said she was attacked at some point. If she does mention the attack, I'll cut it in right here. 
Dr. Webb has been killed, and I've been attacked. I don't know what... I, I have to say, I, I'm surprised that she's even still allowed to content to stay at this house. Well... By who? I mean... By the owners. But allowed is, is strong, because Daniel is continually throughout the rest of this movie trying to convince her not to go back to the right. house and is just to stay at their place and the other dude had a stroke and who else is going to stop her why would the owners care well because someone just died on their property yeah it doesn't <laughs> seem like they're being held accountable for it no i i agree but it'd be like the first time we've rented this house in 30 years and within two days someone's dead it's like yeah. uh, you, you 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 close that deal down I would sue that guy's estate for getting blood all over my roof. What were you doing out on the ledge? Yeah. Luring men to their deaths. <laughs> like an anglerfish. <laughs> <laughs> Just like anglerfish is out on the ledges of top floors. We cut to Daniel's car pulling up outside the Octagon house and then back to Lauren on the phone again. She begs Mark to get her out of here. Over her shoulder, we see the colonel in a wheelchair listening to the conversation. Mark tells her to go back to the house and wait for him. On her way out, Lauren asks the butler if he knows of anyone named Abby, and after some confusion, he thinks she might be looking for Abner Wells, Frank's good friend. Lauren asks for directions to Abner's place, and the butler refuses on account of Abner being an asshole. <laughs> Outside the house, Daniel has found a copy of Lauren's book of the nesting and recognizes the house that his family owns from the cover. Somehow, Lauren finds Abner's place. I guess the butler gave in. It's kind of weird that this doesn't come back. That Daniel figuring out that she has a drawing on a already published book doesn't, yeah. doesn't matter at nope. all. Irrelevant. Lauren introduces herself to Abner. Who the hell are you? Uh, Lauren Cochran. Cochran. <laughs> Which way did run? <laughs> <laughs> he invites her in so they can have a chat. She lies to Abner that she's writing a book set here in Dover Falls and that Frank told her that Abner could help. She tells Abner that she needs some history on the town and specifically that house, and Frank said that he knew all about it. We well, did, did he? She asks Abner if it's a possibility that the house is haunted, and he finally realizes that she's the woman renting it. She asks what CF or FC might stand for, because of the candlesticks she found, and Abner is disturbed by the initials, or possibly the specific mention of the candlesticks. Abner gets angrier and louder throughout her questioning, and she's really not reading the room. She should have stood up and left a while ago, but she keeps asking questions, making him angrier and angrier. She waits for him to sweep the contents of his kitchen table to the floor, shattering beer bottles and plates, before even considering running for her life. He chases her out of the house, and once she gets in her car, he grabs her hair through the passenger side window. This is where you start the car and drive off, just dragging this asshole down the street. Yeah. Again, I think she bites his hand to get him to let go. Uh, I thought she rolled up the window. I thought she like got his arm in the Maybe, windows. maybe that's what it was. But he yanks his hand back out, and she's able to roll the window all the way up. So he jumps on the windshield and just starts pounding on the glass. Yeah, he's super crazy. He's almost got like zombie like makeup. Yeah. Like he's super pale and his eyes are bulging out. It does seem like he and Frank both were possessed by something suddenly when mm -hmm. they when they go into these fits of rage. Lauren peels out and races off down the street and Abner is right on her tail with his station wagon. 
man, the 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 tire screeching sound yeah. is like this really great stock tire screech sound, and they use it throughout the entire chase. It's just <laughs> the same sound over and over again. I was like, man, getting some real use out of that sound effects library. <laughs> Abner's gone completely insane, and he rams her car from the side over and over again, laughing hysterically as the two cars race down the road. A woman walks out of the woods right in front of Abner's car, and he runs her over without slowing down. A quarter mile down the road, what looks like the same woman walks out in front of him again and laughs as he plows through this one too. At this point, he seems to lose control of his car, and it skids off the road, and for some stupid fucking reason, Lauren pulls over to check on the crazy murderer who just crashed off the road. Yeah, I was like, why did you stop? Why are you going backwards? (laughs) Why are you putting your head in his mouth? (laughs) She finds him on the ground, and when she leans forward to listen for a heartbeat, he sits up and bites her ear. Yeah. Do you guys recall the last time somebody had their ear cut open? Oh, was it high risk? It was high risk. Cleave on little. <laughs> uh, I my note here is you deserve all of this because why did you go back? At this point, I just thought, good. You don't deserve for your car to start anymore. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so like up until this point, I feel like I thought that these spirits were confined to the house, or maybe the house and the attached pond or whatever property. water. Yeah, yeah, is yeah. The the property the itself. Lake. And now that they can randomly appear on the road, that's out the window. Like, I I don't know what their constraints are. It's like when Jason Voorhees showed up at that Nevada apartment to kill Alice. Which I think it's okay that they aren't necessarily confined to the house. But if that's the case, I don't know why they didn't do this sooner. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, this has been available to them the whole time. I guess they didn't have anyone to lead along these roads to get these people in high-speed chases if they just stay in their houses if that's what they required she runs back to her car to get away from him and it won't start she gets out of the car and runs to a nearby home pounding on the door and begging for someone to let her in no one does and the door is locked so abner chases her screaming like a madman to a nearby barn she hides near the barn doors until abner notices her feet from around the corner the chase resumes until lauren grabs a sickle off the wall Abner arms himself with a pitchfork, a much better weapon, right? and the two face off. This is like you always go for the one that's got added length. She falls backward in some hay, and it looks like he stabs her through the face Yeah. with the pitchfork, later, but then he pulls it back and she's fine. No, later she has like, she has a little bruise on her cheek, and I'm like, is that it? And then I notice that she has like on her forehead, like what looks like a little stabby wound, well, but I feel like that would be <laughs> bleeding and kill you if it actually stabbed into your skull yeah it looks like the one of the things went through her eye though from the angle that they're showing it stab her face to the ground but she's fine now abner sees a vision of the laughing blonde woman that he ran over twice and his pitchfork is lifted into the sky and floats away from him eventually stabbing into the wall do you you guys recall the last time (laughs) that a pitchfork became sentient in a barn and stabbed into an inanimate object boogeyman that's right yeah i do remember (laughs) (laughs) lauren takes advantage of his confusion swinging the scythe down diagonally across his face do you guys recall the last time that someone had a blade buried diagonally across their face friday the 13th part two that's correct 
Lauren starts crying about the terrifying horror that she has caused in self-defense and runs into the woods back to the octagon house. She collapses just inside the door and turns her head to see someone coming down the stairs. Daniel takes his time announcing himself. He's just like, she's sobbing and freaking out and he's walking towards her all menacingly. And right. then for the last 10 feet, he's like, it's me, Daniel. I don't know why you're freaking out. Back at the colonel's house, the butler is carrying a tray through the house when he hears a gunshot and drops everything. When he gets to the colonel's office, LeBrun looks dead. The butler asks why he would attempt suicide, and LeBrun says that he fired the gun to call the butler upstairs, instead of just, you know, calling, calling the, butler the butler upstairs. <laughs> the colonel claims to be having heart trouble and asks the butler to call a doctor. Back at the Octagon House, Lauren has just finished telling Daniel the whole story, but admits that she has all the earmarks of a lunatic. <laughs> and then Daniel points to her literal earmarks and says, it seems like Abner is the lunatic in this case. Lauren tells Daniel that she's been in analysis for years and has a crippling fear of men. For all she knows, she'll accuse Daniel of attacking her next. Daniel asks why she hadn't reached out about Frank's disappearance sooner, and she blames her agoraphobia. Also, there's no phone here. <laughs> yeah. Also, she went to his fucking house and knocked on so the door did. and he wasn't there. She tried. Mm -hmm. <laughs> she could have just said, I tried to go to your house and you weren't there. But instead she said, I can't leave this building. She could have left a note. Sure. And that's why you always leave a note. Also, there's a dead body in some random barn somewhere. Yeah, that's true. Well, they're on they the lookout now. They do go to confirm yeah. that. Daniel keeps trying to minimize Lauren's mental health issues and blames her head shrinker for all the damage. He insists that they leave together and he'll keep her safe at his place until Mark gets to town, but she refuses to go with him. So sure I'd be safe with you anyway. You know what? You're too damn crazy to be crazy. Which really doesn't make any sense at all, but it reminded me of the ninth configuration when Cutshaw tells Kane, You're too human to be human. <laughs> we cut to Mark in his car approaching the property when his car is suddenly lurching up and down as things clang and crumple beneath him. For some reason, he continues driving like this until the car literally dies. And even then, he tries to restart it instead of checking underneath to see why it sounds like he just ran over a fucking jungle gym. Okay, so now again, is there any supernatural thing that has caused his car to stop? Who's to say? Okay. But yes, also <laughs> unrelated victim. <laughs> when he opens the hood, he's looking inside when his radio starts blasting music from the 40s, startling him. When he goes to shut off the radio, the hood slams shut. We cut to nighttime at the Octagon, and the same music is playing on a record player. The sitting room is crowded with prostitutes and customers, and now Lauren is laying across the same couch among them, but much more comfortable than before, and casually fanning herself in the middle of the delusion. Women drag men out of this room and into the bedrooms, and eventually Daniel appears with a flower to take Lauren to a room where they are quickly having sex. Lauren is awoken from this dream by someone pounding on the front door of her place. It's not Mark, but Daniel, here with a flower to apologize for the way he treated her yesterday. The flower reminds her of the dream, and she kisses Daniel. Am I imagining things now? Uh, no, I don't think so. Well, neither were you. Abner is dead. Nice segue, dude. <laughs> Did I imagine that kiss? By the way, you totes murdered that guy yesterday. <laughs> So you're not crazy. You murdered him with a scythe in the face, but yeah. you're not crazy. This Congratulations. <laughs> Perfectly healthy. 
That makes me feel so much better. I'm a physicist. <laughs> Got some letters similar to a psychologist, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's all that matters. Some letters. Frank is still missing, and Lauren worries that he's planning his next attack, but Daniel, based on nothing, assumes that Frank will never come back. He's gone forever. You can yeah. count on me. He tries again to convince Lauren to join him at the colonel's place. She gives him the number to Mark's office to check on the friend that still hasn't shown up. When Mark gets home, Butler Joseph delivers the message from Mark that he's hung up waiting on car repairs. At the octagon, Lauren is flipping through a deck of tarot cards when she notices the ghostly blonde woman again. She leads Lauren into the next room over, full again with prostitute ghosts. Back at the colonel's place, Daniel speaks with Colonel LeBrun about his quote-unquote father. The colonel comes clean and admits that Leland was not his father, that Daniel's mother ran off with another man, but she was already dead by the time Daniel's father came home from the war. So I guess Daniel's was raised by his grandfather in the absence of his parents? Yeah. Is that what they're saying? When Daniel asks why they lied to him, the colonel says that he's the closest thing that he had to family. Who the fuck is Daniel? He's the son of Leland's ex-girlfriend yeah. Yeah. and somebody else. Yes. How is this the closest thing you have to family? How do you even get custody of someone else's kid? Well, because they th ever everyone thought it was Leland's son and only only this dude knew it wasn't. I mean, a couple other people like Abner and Frank also knew. Yeah. Instead of asking anything about his potentially living biological father, Daniel asks about Florinda and the colonel admits to renting her the house. If I hadn't, things might have turned out differently for Leland. The colonel sent his son to Florinda's to get him out of his funk. Apparently, Leland fell in love with one of Florinda's girls, Rose Henderson, and proposed to her. The colonel couldn't let his only son marry a whore. We cut back to the house where Lauren is conversing with the ghostitutes and realizes that she must be in the dream again. One of the women, probably Florinda, but she hasn't introduced herself and won't, asks Lauren if this dream is in any way different than the others. Eventually, Lauren admits that yes, someone is missing from the dream now. And then, in a mirror, a woman appears. We cut back to the colonel, who's telling Daniel that Leland got Rose pregnant. Florinda came to him to petition for his approval of the marriage of Leland and Rose, but instead, he told Florinda to fire Rose or that he would close the whole house down. So she threatened to spill his family secrets all over town if he shut the place down. So the colonel got Leland committed because it would be less embarrassing for people to know his son was committed to an asylum than to hear that he got a prostitute pregnant and tried to make it proper. While Leland was hospitalized, Rose had a baby girl. When Leland was released from the hospital, he still wanted to go through with the marriage and begged for his father's blessing, but the colonel refused and hired Frank, Abner Wells, and a new character named Earl Harris to kidnap the baby. Instead of just kidnapping the baby, though, they went in guns blazing and killed everyone but the baby in the whole house. Leland manages to shoot one of the attackers before he takes a full shotgun load to the belly. Rose gets shot in the chest as well before the boys move room by room and kill the prostitutes and customers throughout the entire building. Seems like shooting up a bunch of servicemen is a bad right. plan. I feel like yeah. people would have known that yeah. that happened there's a whole platoon in this building and nobody's firing back at you and and i guarantee there are servicemen at the base who know that some of these guys are there right it's not like they're they're unknown right. locations 
But amazingly, they're all sitting ducks. Like, they come out of the rooms and just stand paralyzed until they get shot. Like, they're not trained for that sort of a situation. But, like, they go to try to cover it up. And I'm like, how are you covering up the the dudes that you just shot? These are these are yeah. known men in the military. Yeah. These are not the less dead, you know. You can't just wave them under the rug. Or into the pond. Or into the pond, maybe. Abner does most of the shooting, and when everyone else is dead, we can just hear the baby crying. The baby who, unlike Daniel, is the closest thing the colonel has to family. Turns out, Florinda is the last survivor and takes out one of the killers as they march into the room with the baby before Abner picks up one of the candlesticks and beats Florinda to death with it. But I think she killed Earl Harris, right? Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. Because they obviously didn't kill Frank or Abner. Around here is when the colonel says that he showed up and instructed the boys to dump the bodies in the pond, which explains the hands rising out of the water to take Frank. They placed the baby in a home for foundlings. That girl. That Cochrane girl. It's she. It's got to be. She's come back. The colonel has what looks like another stroke and dies. We cut back to the house where Lauren is speaking with the ghost of what she has determined to be her mother. It's actually the same actress in makeup with her hair in a bun. Mm -hmm. This is the woman whose face was a mirror before. When Lauren reaches out for her, she vanishes again, at which point Florinda steps in to belatedly explain the no touching rule. (laughs) No touching. No touching. Mama. Uh, You can't touch your mother. Not now. Not ever. She's, She's gone. Okay, why? Why are you here? Didn't you guys die together? Yeah. Why are you the spokesman for, she's for the, the ghost? She's the madam. She's, she says who can see who and who can touch who. Florinda explains that they've avenged their deaths through Lauren. What about Dr. Webb? Yep. Did Earl Harris change his name and become a therapist? Well, that's why I was asking if any if you thought that his death was completely coincidental or if there was anything, you know, supernatural about it. Yeah. Well, the fact that you pointed out the web is dead thing, web dead, web dead, that the WBs and Ds were broken, seems like they had picked web out before. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't really understand. This brings me to my whole issue with this movie in terms of them. Like, I get that they're trying to seek revenge on these guys. Yeah. But why are you traumatizing your daughter mm-hmm. or your friend's daughter in order to get to that end? Like... They do things that don't really make sense to me in terms of leading to the other the deaths of Frank and Abner. Yeah, that's true. And they don't seem to try to uh, cause the death of uh, what's his name, the grandfather, the LeBron. Right, LeBron. Yeah, yeah LeBron. Colonel LeBron. Uh, th- so they don't do anything specifically to seek him out and kill him, even though he's pretty much responsible for all of this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't understand why they took bystanders with them although i was i was sure at one point here that mark was dead like as soon as the car broke down and he was stuck out all night i thought we aren't going to see him again or we're going to find him and i guess maybe they delayed him that was the point of uh, maybe they did stop his car just to keep him away from the house longer to get this all accomplished maybe. i don't know yeah well and it, and it seems like i know we're, we're the movie's almost over and we're kind of like already kind of like going over our, our final thoughts um <laughs> the she killed abner 100 yeah it was her that did it right but with 
uh, Frank, it was the ghosts that killed him. Yeah. And and so like when when why I I feel like then the ghost should have also have killed Abner. Like they made the pitchfork fly. Why didn't they use that to kill? Why didn't they kill? Him? Or they should have been forced to use her to kill Frank. Also, yeah, right. exactly. It's right. not consistent. Yeah, yeah. But either way, as soon as Abner's dead, the ghosts are happy already. But weird shit continues to happen right. after Why? that. Why? Shouldn't that the, the, be the end of it? <laughs> I don't get it. Florinda tells Lauren to leave the house now, but she refuses to abandon the ghost of her mother. Florinda vanishes, and Lauren finds herself alone again. She moves to another room where a cradle rocks on its own and then suddenly rises into the air and flies through a closed window. The wind howls into the house and sucks all the objects from the room out into the yard. Lauren holds on tight to her desk until the suction pulls the front doors closed and the wind stops. Lauren tries to read some of her manuscript, but the pages spontaneously combust in her hands. While she struggles to put out tiny fires, someone is struggling to open the door to the room. When whoever it is gives up on opening the door, headlights fill the room through the window, and after a moment, Frank's truck comes crashing through the wall into the room, which I think is on the second story, right? No, I think that's... Is this still the first story? I think this is on the first story. It's yeah. her writing room. Yeah. And her writing room slash bedroom is on the first story because they couldn't get electricity on the second floor. Oh, okay. But the truck comes through the wall, and when it comes to a stop, the cab of the truck is just billowing with flames. Outside, a car can be seen racing toward the house. Inside, everywhere Laura turns, the walls and doors are bursting into flames. She stands in the middle of the room and just screams for a while, but eventually she gets control of her breathing, she calms down, and she slowly turns in the room. After panning past all the flames, she realizes that the room is not actually on fire, and her dream has ended again. But this building didn't burn down in the past. Nope. So they're just scaring her with fire for no reason? Well, and my thought was, oh, okay, so now your dream's about to come true and this place is going to burn down for reals, and then it doesn't. Nope. (laughs) Air on a G-string starts up again as Lauren walks out of the house just as Mark's car pulls up, and they embrace in the yard, and then Daniel's car pulls up, and she ditches Mark and goes to hug Daniel, and the credits (laughs) roll. I couldn't tell which was which. I'm like, I couldn't I, either, I so I just guessed. Showed up first. I know she doesn't like Mark, and she likes Daniel. Well, I, thought, I thought I thought that Daniel arrived first and Mark arrived second. That's possible. I couldn't. I I didn't think to recognize the cars. And she goes, "I'm also now the legal owner of this property." Yeah. <laughs> she inherited it officially. Yeah, that's uh, that's the end of our film. Uh, obviously, big thumbs up. No, it's this is a thumbs down. This what? is not. For me, this is a thumbs down. Really? It's not necessary. Yeah. Oh, wow. I actually did give it a big thumbs up. Did you? So uh, despite my problems with it, like it doesn't totally make sense in terms of the ghost motivation. Uh, I found it really creepy. I thought it was terrifying. I was freaked out by that first dream where the people having sex turn and start laughing in her face. Like that was that note creeped me out. Yeah. But aside from that, everything else, I was like, I don't really understand what's motivating any of these scares. Well, yeah. I think arms coming out like of the darkness and wrapping themselves around you is just so horrifying yeah. by itself that that that's enough for me. That's true. But 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 to me, those aren't related to the ghosts. That 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 dream of Mark and her psychologist trying to grope her, I feel like that's internal. That's just her own fears because there's no reason for the ghosts to try to scare her. This is a good question. Like, why do her dreams come back in this house? And why hasn't she dreamed 
when she was away from this house. Yeah. And, and what happened because I, at first I thought maybe that the ghosts were just angry at all men, you know, and it didn't really matter that it was Frank and Abner. Like they wanted to obviously kill them, but they just hated all men, but it didn't seem like that at the end. No. Cause, cause these men were with the women and the one guy was Leland was in love with one of them yeah. and they were trying to all be happy together. Um, one of the things I wanted to mention was that this agoraphobia was, I guess, suddenly onset. Like, she didn't have it before. That's true, yeah. And I don't know if this was the ghosts, like, finally going, now's the time. Yeah, we need to activate her to get her down here. Yeah, like, the, the agoraphobia is going to lead her to coming to this house. Right. Somehow. Somehow the magic will work and we'll get her to this house. Well, another thing that bothers me is the entire subplot about Daniel and his true patronage. And it's like, who cares? This this factors into literally nothing. Like, other than we don't want her to be hitting on her own brother. Well, that's And that's what I thought for yeah. a portion of the film because early on, as soon as I knew, like, or in the very first scene when we get our cold open, somebody yells, where's the baby? So we're, we're, we take the whole scene from outside the house, like the whole shooting of prostitutes from outside the house in that right. one. But somebody yells, where's the baby? And so this entire time, I'm like, okay, one of the prostitutes had a baby. And I thought it was her, like the right. entire time. Mm-hmm. And so then I was thinking they were brother and sister when they started kissing, and I was freaking out. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just, I mean, either that is the point, and they are brother and sister, but if they're not brother and sister, then... Why did Leland have to be both of their dads? Like, why even bring up Leland as a potential father to Daniel? Why can't Daniel just be a guy that works for the old man? Yeah, or he just be the property manager. Like, because the colonel has all these properties that 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 he owns and it rents people rent from. So, just, why why is he a, like a theoretical physicist yeah that that whole complicated everything i I feel like the reason you introduce a theoretical physicist is because you want a skeptic yeah that's going to counter her beliefs but he wasn't skeptical at all he (laughs) went he went along with everything she said he's like well what about that lady you said laughed and then vanished maybe it's her fault and it's like she she vanished people don't vanish (laughs) and i thought for sure that it was going to be like a like a scientific method like he was going to start trying to See if they could catch something in the act, like yeah. set up set up some kind of like ghost traps. Yeah, well, don't no, look into the light. Yeah, like or even just like bringing in like ultrasonic equipment or or, or doing something to try to like to ease her. Like not yeah. like look, I brought in all this equipment. It's either going to not find something, and you know you're you're just hallucinating, or it will find something, and you're right. Yeah, like I was I was expecting that because as a physicist, I'm like he probably has access to to equipment. Yeah. Uh, but that never comes into play. Um, it, uh, uh, this is a stupid tangent, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, did you ever see the movie terrified? It's a, I believe it's an Argentinian or Argentine no. horror film. Um, it's really great. And it, it's on it, shutter, right? Yeah. Um, and it's, it's about like this neighborhood that's being haunted, but these three like ghost hunting scientists come and they each have a different approach. Like one's like a medium. One has all the technology and gadgets. And one is like an occultist. And she's got like weird, like gear driven, like machinery, like with incense and things like that, like hmm. magical stuff. I was like, this is so great. I want to know more about these characters. <laughs> so I was really hoping like that. Oh, yeah. So she's the medium. 
and he's like they're going to use her there as a conduit like I, I kept expecting all these different stories to come from this um, and, they didn't. and they didn't happen and and I really wanted the agoraphobia to play more of a role like in that or any role really yeah. I mean there's one part where she has a hard time getting into a car yeah well it's it is the factor that gets her out into the country in the first place true but that's counterintuitive to someone who's agoraphobic, I feel. Well, if you believe in exposure therapy, I suppose. Mm. There's another film that's very similar that came out uh, maybe about 10 years ago, The Orphanage. Oh, okay. And it, it, it's about a person returning to a place that they remember but don't remember. And there's seemingly malevolent forces, but but maybe it's more that they're trying to communicate with, with her kind mm-hmm. of thing. Yeah. Uh, it's very good. Well, and that's why I like... I like the horror movies, uh, like The Changeling and the others, where it seems like they might be trying to harm you, but they really aren't. They're just trying to communicate with you. Yeah. You know? And so I felt like we needed more of that, where anything that happened to her that was bad or happened to anybody else that was bad that wasn't at fault here Mm -hmm. uh, should have been more explained away by, you know, ghosts just not being good at communicating and i mean that part at the end where they're like we're gonna make her think that a truck crashed into the house and that the whole thing is burning down is that just like get the fuck out this is our house get out get out of my house and why lure her up to the rotunda and get her out on a ledge like to lure someone else out who you don't hate yeah who 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 has done nothing wrong and is trying to help your daughter See, it might be something different if she went up to the attic because it was full of stuff. And like you could have discovered more things, pictures, more clues, more evidence of, of what had happened in this house before. I thought that was going to become an element of it that she was going to uncover information on what had happened here. Yeah. That it wasn't just going to be a 100% confession from Colonel LeBrun. That it was going to be like the changeling where she's uncovering the mystery in the in the house herself. And again, like... If these ghosts can get out of the house to neighboring barns. And control things like pitchforks yeah. and uh, and stuff. I'm like, I'm not sure why they didn't take care of business a while ago. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's definitely still a thumbs down for me just because I feel like it wasn't very focused and I, I wasn't a fan of the writing of it. To be fair, I brought it down some spots after we discussed it, but I really enjoyed watching it. Yeah. <laughs> I think as a first go around, it's great. Probably not a lot of rewatch value. Um, I'm also giving it a thumbs down. Um, I was intrigued, uh, uh, but the story just didn't go where I wanted it to go. And uh, overall, I just was at, at the end. I was kind of like, it just, I just felt very bleh. Yeah. At the end. Um, what are we looking at letterboxed wise? Uh, so I'm sure I have it a lot higher than you guys. I have it at number 16 out of 56. Uh, it is, uh, it is below Caveman and above Eyes of a Stranger. And I think I got similar feelings from Eyes of a Stranger, uh, in terms of it being like, it's not the best movie, but it really kind of hit a chord with me in terms of being creepy. Yeah. Um, so I think that that's where it belongs. Richard. I have it at 36, uh, which puts it below Going Ape and above Modern Romance. Uh, I have it in 40th, which is just under Graduation Day and just above Earthbound. 
Our writer-director was Armand Weston. He had nothing else I recognized. Uh, his top four titles don't even have posters on IMDb. This isn't his. This isn't in his top four on his IMDb page. I, not many people in this movie had anything on their IMDb that yeah. I recognized, <laughs> to be uh, honest. His co-writer was Daria Price, who also wrote Dawn of the Mummy, which we'll be covering later this season. Uh, the music here was from George Kim Scholes. This was his only composing credit. He has mostly cello credits on various soundtracks, including I Am Legend, Despicable Me, TMNT, Out of the Shadows, La La Land, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell No Tales, Transformers The Last Night, and Lego Movie 2. Cinematographer Jao Fernandez, he was the DP of Deep Throat. Uh, later this season, he lenses The Prowler, and even later, he handles uh, Children of the Corn 1, Friday the 13th, The Final Chapter, a bunch of Golden Globus titles, Invasion USA, Missing in Action 3, Delta Force 2, and then he followed Chuck Norris to projects like Sidekicks and Walker, Texas Ranger. The editor, Tomiko, credited as Jack Foster, didn't recognize a lot of her credits, but I did see that she was the credited editor on a couple episodes of a show called Special Ops Mission, on which I was employed <laughs> as a production assistant. We each worked on two episodes of the show, and by chance, we overlapped for one. So it's possible I actually met her at their production offices. <laughs> Robin Groves played Lauren Cochran. Didn't recognize much else, but she was Araya Garin in an episode of Star Trek Voyager. Yeah, I, I, I looked up, I saw Voyager on there and I looked it up, I looked up the episode and was like, I have, don't no, know mem- it. I don't have no memory of this episode. Christopher Loomis played Mark Felton. He's back in So Fine later this season. Michael David Lally played Daniel Griffith. He's the voice of Sparks, one of the bad guys from Cool World. John Carradine was Colonel LeBrun. We just saw him as a surgeon in Myra Breckenridge on our spare time. Uh, he was also in Boogeyman, Howling, Monstroid for a minisode, and he's back in the Monster Club later this season. Patrick Farrelly played Dr. Webb. He was Henry Hollowell in Thinner. He's a CIA agent in The Exterminator, and he's O'Reilly in Fletch Lives. Bobo Lewis played Catherine Beasley. She's credited as Bread Woman in Can't Stop the Music last year. I think that's the woman who's literally carrying groceries that has a loaf of bread sticking out of the top of it. As you do in New York City. Right. It's not a New York City scene unless someone's carrying a grocery bag with a large loaf of bread. I thought that was a France thing, but maybe it's a New York thing too. Uh, She's back as Lady in Coffee Shop for Arthur later this season. June Berry played Sapphire. I'm going to guess that that's one of the prostitutes. That's fair, right? (laughs) Uh, she played Sally, the waitress from The Children, who keeps hitting on the sheriff and then gets stood up on him the night that he's murdered by radioactive kids. Ron Levine played Leland LeBron. He's Gary in Only When I Laugh later this season. James Hayden played GI number one. He's a young policeman in First Deadly Sin, the one that Sinatra gives a bunch of shit to at the crime scene where he's like, why don't you check all the trash cans on the other side of the street too? Uh, Jerry Hewitt played GI number two. He's back later this season as a victim in Wolfen and as a crowd member in Rollover. Cliff Cudney played the sheriff. He was just Max, the tow truck driver, in Friday the 13th Part 2, and he's an ATAC man in Nighthawks. Lee Steele played the doctor. We just had him as the blind magazine vendor in Shaft, and he was also a security guard in Death Wish and a jewelry salesman in Marathon Man. What doctor? Doctor. I don't remember a doctor in here aside from Dr. Webb. Webb, yeah. Uh, doctor. It just says doctor. I'm trying to think of who that could possibly yeah, be. I don't, I don't remember Sheriff either, but 
Maybe there's some scenes cut. Like maybe a doctor came to the house for LeBron. I would guess that would be where the doctor would show yeah. up. Yeah. And Gloria Graham played Florinda. She's Violet in It's a Wonderful Life. She's Angel in The Greatest Show on Earth. And she won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actress for her role as Rosemary in The Bad and the Beautiful. She was Mrs. Sisk in Melvin and Howard last year. And this was her final film. She passed away a mere five months later at the age of 57. Uh, I wanted to bring up uh, Bill Rowley, who played Frank. Oh, okay. Um, not a lot of credits that I recognize, but one additional crew credit I thought was interesting. Uh, additional motion capture for Red Dead Redemption 2. Hmm. Huh. Um, which I was like, okay. He did uh, motion capture for that video game? I was like, How oh. is, that, is, is he still alive? It says IMDb still has him as still alive. Interesting. 19, so he'd be, he, at the time of that game, he would have been in his late 80s. That's pretty old to be doing uh, motion, motion capture, capture. Yeah. capture. Uh, unless he's doing motion capture for, for old people for old people Maybe. yeah that's possible um, but uh yeah i was like i was just looking through his credits i was like red dead redemption was he a voice i was yeah. like no it's like oh motion capture very interesting well i think that especially for a lot of these people having almost no credits in anything else i i actually really liked a lot of the actors sure i the performances were great uh, Mark especially, I was like, who is this guy? I love him. And then I looked him up. I'm like, he's been in five things and I've heard of none of them. Yeah. He reminds <laughs> me of the scared to death guy because they're both like pretty funny and it seems like yeah. they would have been in more stuff. And he's he has like this permanent optimist attitude, like yeah. like being with this woman who keeps rejecting him and still being funny and playful with her. Yeah. And like, I just I just loved this character, and I was like, oh, cool. What else have you been in? Oh, nothing. Nothing. <laughs> he, he reminded me of uh, Joe Don Baker. Oh, okay, yeah. Like, just like, this kind of like goofiness to him. Joe Don Baker terrifies me after Fletch. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> not, not the, the like, golden eye. Uh, no, I always think of him like, it's like, I'm going to take out this knife, and I'm going to cut myself, and I'm going to say you did it. <laughs> And that's why I killed you. And he's like, oh, you're not kidding. Well, also that scene that we watched of him uh, beating those guys senselessly after driving a car into a train. <laughs> what was that in? Oh, we, didn't, didn't I watch that scene with you? Like the, it was like, oh, yeah, like the yes. most dangerous stunt. Like, where we where just it, watched the one clip of it. But yeah, yeah if you, these people are trying to hijack his car so he drives it onto the train tracks and yeah. dives out at the last second. But then he just beats the crap out of the other, yeah. like the yeah. surviving guy. Um, and I was like, man, that's a frightening character. But I don't remember what movie that was from, but that was an awesome shot. I think that's everything for the nesting. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord now. If you'd like to join the 24-7 movie chat, you can find us at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Image of the Beast, which IMDb describes like so. Third and best known entry in the Mark IV series of fundamentalist apocalypse films. The best known? The best known. We leave you now with (laughs) the trailer? (laughs) Uh, More likely a clip from Image of the Beast. The first in this prophetic series was a thief in the night. Then came a distant thunder, and now the mightiest of them all, Image of the Beast. Now he's giving mankind what we really always wanted, 
a world without God. Image of the Beast from Mark Four Pictures.